The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We are here this morning to study in the word of God, and we are studying in the life of David. I would ask all of you to be in prayer for me to have wisdom to know what it is we're going to study next. Because if you have the notes there, you'll see that what we're looking at in this lesson is David's death. And that actually will lead into the beginning of Solomon's reign, which we are going to spend a little bit of time on. We're going to look at Solomon and uh, the beginning of his reign and some of the things that go on there. There's some powerful lessons to learn from that. But then we need to move on. It's going to be time to move on to another series And uh, I've been praying about different things, but I'm asking you to join me in prayer and help me to understand what it is that this congregation needs as far as uh, what what lessons we need to work on next. What should we be studying uh, to help benefit the souls of all of the saints in this church? Before we begin our study in the life of David, uh, we are going to take a moment for silent prayer. It's imperative for us as believer priests to be prepared for the study of the word of God. So this silent prayer gives us the opportunity to confess sins if needed, but also to humble ourselves so that we might be teachable. Shall we pray? Most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this blessing of being able to gather here at the church. We thank you for all the things that you provide us in grace that allows us to have this blessing, the fellowship that we're going to get to enjoy here with our brothers and sisters in Christ, this opportunity to look at your word and be blessed by it. Father, we don't deserve all that you provide for us. You have provided us grace upon grace, a spiritual abundance that's hard to really understand. But yet, Father, you've provided it for us, and to whom much is given, much is required. We ask, Father, that you would help us in our own souls to be thankful for all the spiritual blessings that we have, all the blessings that we have, even those that are given to us in the temporal realm. Help us to have a grateful heart and to recognize the importance of taking opportunity uh, as you give them to us, taking these opportunities to just be nourished by your word. Uh, that our souls would be blessed by the truth of your word, that we would take these things in, we would hear them, we would receive them, we would believe them, and that we would learn them to the point where we're ready to use them in our daily lives. Father, we are so thankful for what your word does in our own souls, the renewing of the mind that takes place. And we ask that you would help us to set aside the distractions of life this morning, that we might learn what it is you prepared for us on this day. We pray all of these things in Jesus Christ's most precious and beautiful name. Amen. Well, to those who were listening uh, virtually there and then we stopped for a moment uh, and then uh, restarted the live stream, that was on purpose. Uh, I did not want you to, if you could have heard the whole congregation singing, uh, then I would have gladly turned that on and let you hear this congregation singing because they did a beautiful job with that song. I just didn't want you to hear me only uh, because my voice is not that great <laughs> in general, and especially right now, uh, <clears throat> I have been struggling uh, somewhat with um, with allergies, and uh, and it's just caused me to have a. I'm constantly having to <clears throat> clear my throat, and as a result, my singing voice is even uh, affected more so than normal. So uh, I was sparing all of you. I figured the music that you'd hear when we cut that off was nicer than what you'd hear <laughs> if you heard me singing. But what we sang, so you know, so what we, what we were singing was, It Is Well With My Soul. And I do want to talk about that hymn just briefly. As most of you know, uh, that hymn was written by someone who had just had unbelievable tragedy in his life, loss of family, and really he had every reason in, in, in a worldly sense uh, from the human viewpoint perspective, he had every reason uh, to go crawl in a hole somewhere and cry out, poor, poor, pitiful me. I mean, uh, because this person had experienced tremendous loss, and yet he writes this hymn that is so uplifting. It is well with my soul. He realized that uh, in the midst of this unbelievable tragedy, he still had his relationship with God and with his Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And that to him was worth everything. And his soul was okay. He was going to be okay knowing that he had that relationship with God. Some of you have faced uh, loss and difficult situations in your own lives. I know, you know, Deb, for example, she was, uh, her family was a victim of the 2011 fire. Um, you know, and they, and, and you've recovered since then. Uh, God has brought you through. Uh, but, you know, all of us have, have experienced difficulties in our own lives from time to time. And uh, just recently I was reading an article where a family had uh, two of their children that died within a short period of time. And this person is a person of faith, and he was talking about how that song, It Is Well With My Soul, actually did great things to give him comfort in his own soul. So here's a man, I want you to think about that. So here's a man who faced very difficult situation, and yet he put his eyes, he fixed his eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. He saw the reality of the fact that God would, God hadn't left him. God was still there. He still had a Savior, Jesus Christ. He was going to go to heaven when he died. He realized his, his soul was okay. The, the idea of God being there for him was a salve to his soul and he was motivated in that moment to sit down and write this marvelous hymn, and it's still blessing people today. And so what I want you to realize is that <clears throat> the way that you handle things, you know, Deb, the way that you handle that situation, the way we all handle difficulties that come our way, the things that we go through, that can have ripple effects. If it's not to the extent of, of, of a hymn writer who has written a hymn that people all over the world know, it could be within your own family. The way you handle it. it could be your friends. It could be you don't know. You do not know the ripple effect that's going to come when you handle a situation in the strength of the Lord. When you rely upon Holy Spirit to give you what you need to get through a crisis in your life. These things are important to keep in mind because remember when we are at those when we're, we're at the precipice. We can go two ways, right? We can go that way where we rely upon God and his wisdom and his strength. And we can come out victorious. And everybody's going to see that when we do. Or we can go the other way as well. And we can go the other direction of that poor, poor, pitiful me. And we can, and we can dive into the sins of the flesh. And we can immediately start showing ourselves as not any different than the average person on the street. Right? We can act just like any unbeliever that's out there. And when we do, that gets noticed as well. I always talk about it. You're a witness all the time, whether you like it or not. You're either a good one or you're a bad one. But what I want you to realize is that when you walk with God, when you're walking in that worthy manner, there are, that is something that can cascade over and over in, through your family, through your friends, and in this case, you know, to the whole world through a hymn that this, this man wrote, It Is Well With My Soul. So uh, I think it's a beautiful hymn. And, and part of the reason you know, I, was, I wanted us to sing it this morning is because, quite frankly, the last few months have been pretty bizarre. We've been going through some of the strangest times I can remember in my life. And all of us have had to rely upon our relationship with God to kind of get through all of this and uh, maintain our sanity. I'm looking around the room. Most of us have maintained our sanity. I see some exceptions. But <laughs> just kidding. Uh, but this is the key, right? We need to make sure we understand that uh, our, souls are in, our souls are in the very hands of God uh, if we turn our eyes to him. All right, to the life of David, to the life of David. We're looking at David's death. On David's deathbed, uh, David gave some parting charges to Solomon, his son, who was going to be the next king, uh, verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> we'll look at it piece by piece here. Uh, first of all, uh, he told Solomon to obey God's word and walk in God's ways. Uh, he starts out here at the beginning. It says, as David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon, his son, uh, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. So very important. What does he mean? I'm going the way of all the earth. He knew he was going to die. Uh, he said, be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. How do we show ourselves as men? Uh, as, as all the men that are in this congregation, uh, it doesn't mean you go out and take an, you know, it mean you go out and take an ax and split some wood. That's not how you show yourself a man. You want to show yourself a man. You follow the things of the Lord. That's a true man. I've talked about it before. They're not here this morning. Uh, but Howard and Deborah, uh, that's an amazing, they're an amazing couple. 
Uh, Deborah has been a, just a tremendous witness to this congregation and how she's handled a very difficult situation with the disease that she's battling. Uh, Howard has shown everybody in this congregation what it means to be a man and what it means to be a loving husband. He has, he has been a tremendous witness to this congregation. So that's what it means to be a man. That's what, that's what David is telling Solomon right here. Then he goes on in verses 3 and 4. He says, uh, Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies. By listing all of those out, he's not leaving anything uncovered, right? His statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses. Now look at what it says here. That you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out his promise, which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So the purposes of all of this, that Solomon would be successful and that God would fulfill his promise to David. That's the point of all of that. What about uh, what comes next in verses five and six? David asks Solomon to recompense Joab for his savagery. Uh, Verses five and six, he says, now also... Excuse me, now you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and to Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. He also shed the blood of war in peace, and he put the blood of war on his belt, about his waist, and on his sandals, on his feet. So act according to your wisdom, and do not let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. So he's telling Solomon to take care of Joab because of his bloodthirstiness, his savagery. He also says he wants Solomon to show kindness to the sons of Barzillai. Remember, Barzillai had been a blessing uh, to David. We studied that in in this very study. It says here in verse 7, But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table, for they assisted me when I fled from Absalom your brother. So not only did Barzillai bless him, but also the sons blessed him, and he wants them uh, to be given special treatment. So this is not all about recompense. He wants wants kindness here for the sons of Barzillai, but he does want recompense for Shimei, for his belligerence. It's interesting what he says here. It shows integrity in David, and yet uh, an interesting facet here. He He doesn't want Shimei to be able to get away with what he was up to. He says, Behold, there is with you Shimei, the son of Gera the Benjamite, of Bahurim. Now it was he who cursed me with a violent curse on the day that I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. And we studied both of those incidents. We studied the cursing, and we studied that when he came down, and then David made the promise, he said, I will not put you to death with the sword. He didn't say that it wouldn't happen, he just said, I won't do it. Right? Uh, And then verse 9, it says, Now, therefore, do not let him go unpunished, for you are a wise man, and you will know what you ought to do to him, and you will bring his gray hair down to Sheol with blood. So he's asking for recompense. He promised that he wouldn't do anything, but uh, that doesn't mean that Solomon can't. So Joab, his bloodthirstiness needs to be paid back. Uh, There's recompense for Shimei because of his belligerence and all that he did in the cursing there. But he wants to show kindness to the sons of Barzillai. Uh, David then died after reigning for 40 years as king over Judah and Israel. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Interesting. So they call it here in this verse, the city of David, (laughs) right? It's already being known as the city of David. The, uh, The days that David reigned over Israel were 40 years, seven years. He reigned in Hebron and 33 years. He reigned in Jerusalem. Uh, David was a remarkable man. I mean, I just wanted to take this time. Here he dies. He's been there 40 years. I just think of him. He's a remarkable man. He was a warrior. I, I, I should have probably said a mighty warrior. I mean, I think, that's, I think you can make that argument, that he was a mighty warrior. Military genius. I am not exaggerating. We took the time to look at some of the things that occurred during the time when David was fleeing from Saul Uh, We've looked at some of the things that took place while he was reigning over Israel in terms of his military prowess. Uh, And what we 
what we did was a survey of those things. We kind of just looked at them and talked about them as a survey as we were going through the chapters. I'm not joking when I tell you that there are people who have studied David and his military actions, the way he, the way he would get a, a network going where he could get intel, for example, uh, his strategy in terms of how he approached different battles, uh, the way David handled himself in terms of uh, military conflict was pure genius. And that has been studied for years, been studied for years. And so anybody who wants to be uh, up on what, it, what you're supposed to do as far as handling yourself in battle, David is one of the people that you study. And uh, I, I've talked in the past about uh, General Patton. Believe me when I tell you, he studied David. He studied others as well, but he studied David to learn how David had handled himself. Uh, he was a poet, a musician. Uh, we were talking about that just, uh, just now in the prayer meeting, about how some people have the, the musical gift. Uh, I have the gift for mathematics. I'm an engineer. Uh, I do not have much of a musical gift at all. I would love to have it. I love music. I absolutely love music. Uh, but I don't have the, the musical gift at all. But, but David clearly did. Clearly did. Uh, and I'm not much of a poet either, by the way. If I try to write poetry, it looks like something, uh, well, I, I won't say. But it's just not very good. Um, the, he's a tremendous administrator as well. Look at how he handled things and how he made sure that the right people were in the right place. If you think about it, that's a huge part uh, of what it takes to be successful as a leader is that you get the right people in the right place underneath you and you, you trust them to do their jobs well. Uh, so he was a tremendous administrator. But above all, he was a man of God. For all of his flaws, for all of his failings, uh, David was clearly a man of God. I mean, if you look at, it's kind of interesting because in Romans, this, this past hour, we were looking at the section of Romans 7 where Paul talks about the conflict of two natures. How this big struggle was going on internal with him between, you know, what the law of his mind and the law of sin that's in his body and the, just the struggle between what he wants to do and the sin nature that wants to do something else. And, and, and in David's life, a, a man of God, a man after God's own heart, he's described as a man after God's own heart. We see those same struggles taking place. David was not perfect. He made mistakes. Uh, he was a flawed man and there were struggles in his own life. And yet he was, I think, I think you can safely say, he was a man of God. He was definitely a man of God. David, by the way, lived about 70 years. Uh, if we look back at 2 Samuel 5, 4, it said David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. So uh, whether that means he was 69 or 70, we don't know, but uh, a roughly 70 years old when he, when he died. After David's death, Solomon was firmly established as king, at least initially. We're going to see that. Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. So uh, at this point, the initial, right after David's death, uh, initially anyway, Solomon is established uh, over Israel. His kingdom is established. However, very next verse Adonijah asked Solomon to give him Abishag the Shunammite as his wife. And this is a play. We're going to see that uh, in, this, in this section. Instead of asking Solomon directly, he petitioned Bathsheba to make his request before Solomon. Interesting, I thought. There were a couple of reasons for that, verses 13 through 21. Now, Adonijah, the son of Hagith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. And she said, do you come peacefully? And he said peacefully. And that's a legitimate question after what's happened, right? <laughs> that's a legitimate question. Uh, do you come peacefully? And he said peacefully. Then he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, speak. So he said, and this is interesting, right? He prefaces it with this. Pay attention. You know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israel, and I'll tell you what this actually says here. All Israel expected me to be king. Actually, what that says is all Israel turned their faces to me as king. In other words, they were acknowledging him as king. I don't know about expected, but they acknowledged him as king. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brothers. And he does, he does say at the very end of this, for it was his from the Lord. He says that. But now if you think about it, what's getting ready to come up in this petition, why did he even bother to say that? Well, it's going to become obvious pretty quickly. Pretty quickly. 
It says here, now I am making one request of you. Do not refuse me. And she said to him, speak. Now, keep in mind, Bathsheba is not his mother. Bathsheba is Solomon's mom, but Bathsheba is not his mother. It starts out Adonijah, the son of Haggith, right? So this is his stepmom, if you will. And so all of this pleading that he's doing is, is you would expect something like that because he's got to say to his stepmom, please listen to what I'm saying. But she's being cordial about the whole thing. She says, speak. Then he said, please speak to Solomon, the king, for he will not refuse you, refuse you. Now, so this is a big part. First of all, I think, first of all, I think Adonijah is a little bit of a coward here. I do. I think Adonijah is a little bit of a coward here. But he also recognizes that if Bathsheba goes and does this, he's going to listen, right? He's going to listen to what his mom says. She will, he will not refuse you, excuse me, that he may give me Abishag the Shunammite as a wife. Now, remember who that is, right? Who is Abishag the Shunammite? She was the nurse. She was the nurse uh, that had been there with David during his dying days, right? She was the warmer. Yeah, that's right. She was the warmer. That's exactly correct. And uh, Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak to the king for you. So she agrees to do it. She agrees to do it. Verses 19 through 21 here. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. And the king arose to meet her. Now look at, look at what happened. Bathsheba goes to see Solomon. Solomon has been established already initially as king. The king arose to meet her bowed before her. Now, is that awesome that he has, as king, he could have already been all full of himself, but instead his mom shows up and what does he do? He bows down and then sat on his throne. Then he had a throne set for the king's mother and she sat on his right. Now that's, oh, I mean, he's showing her great respect, right? He's showing her great respect. Then she said, I am making one small request of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, ask my mother, for I will not refuse you. So she said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as a wife. So she's done what Adonijah asked her to do. She's gone in. She's talked to Solomon and she asked the question. Again, you notice, as I mentioned in verse 15, I believe that whole thing where he was talking about the throne. I, I think he was expressing that he believed the throne was supposed to be his, even though he said for it was his from the Lord. I think Adonijah still thinks I'm supposed to be king. <clears throat> he knew Solomon would listen to Bathsheba, as I pointed out, and then she agreed to speak with him. So <clears throat> Bathsheba relays the request to her son Solomon, as we just read, and Solomon immediately recognized this as a play for the throne. That's what's going on here. That's the subtlety that's here, right? He says, go ask for Abishag the Shunammite, this is a play for the throne. And I think that's why he even said what he did. He was expressing that he wanted to be on the throne. King Solomon, he's wise in this. He says, he answered and said to his mother, and why are you asking Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him also the kingdom. For he is my older brother, even for him, for Abiathar the priest and for Joab the son of Zeruiah. Remember, they went with him. Remember when he, remember when he tried to take the throne, those two went with him. They followed along with Adonijah. So he, see, Solomon recognizes what's going on. He says, don't ask for that. Ask for the whole kingdom. That's what he's asking for. That's what he wants. So just go ahead and ask for the whole thing, for, for, for Abiathar and for, for uh, Joab as well. Solomon then immediately took action and had Adonijah executed. So at this point, he realizes that this is, this, this is going to be a problem, and I've got to take care of it now. King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, May God do so to me and more also if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. In other words, what he's saying here is a threat to me. He's trying to take the throne from me. And in doing so, he's threatened his own life. Now, therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and set me on the throne of David, my father, and who has made me a house as he promised. See, all of this is very important. Surely Adonijah shall be put to death today. In other words, Adonijah, not only is he trying to take the throne from Solomon, who David said would be the king, he's trying to take the throne from Solomon, who God said would be the king, right? That's as important or more so, yes. This is very much, okay, so that's very much 
a ploy, that's something that would be done during the time, is that you, if you could go in and you could get one of the harem, right? If you could get someone from the harem or you could take someone who's close in, into the king, then basically you're, you're threatening the king. It's a very much a thing of the time that if... It's who. Yeah, it's not that he's getting to marry someone. It's who, because this was the woman that was with David during his dying days. And by asking for Abishag, he is threatening Solomon's throne. Yes. Yeah, see, there you go. So Abishag was with him during his dying days. She was there. We don't know how long that period of time was, but she was with him pretty much nonstop, right, Uh, during his dying days. And so she was very close. And so this whole thing of asking for her in doing that, it's the person he asked for. That's the threat. By asking for her, he's threatening David's line, which is Solomon, right, which is Solomon. He's making a threat to the throne. Make sense? Yeah, it's the person he asked for. Uh, in verse 25 there, uh, wait a minute, did I finish? Surely Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent Benaiah. Benaiah is the hitman here in all of this. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he fell upon him so that he died. So Benaiah, uh, remember, who's Benaiah? He's the head of the king's guard. Now, he was the head of the king's guard under David, and we assume that he's also the head of the king's guard under Solomon, especially by these actions, right? He asks him to take care of it, and he does. With Adonijah out of the way, Solomon then is going to take care of some lingering issues from David's reign. Some of the things that he got talked to about is what we're talking about here. First of all, uh, he respectfully, I think this was, was actually very well done. He respectfully dismissed Abiathar from being priest over Israel, verses 26 and 27. He could have killed him, right? Because remember, he was part of the, he was part of the group that uh, that rebelled with Adonijah, and he could have had Abiathar killed, but I think because he's a priest, he was respectful toward him, and he just had him dismissed. Then to Abiathar the priest, the king said, go to Anathoth to your own field, for you deserve to die. Notice what he says. You deserve to die. But I will not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David, and because you were afflicted in everything which my father with which my father was afflicted. See, again, He was the priest who was there during David's reign, and he's showing respect for him. So Solomon dismissed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, which he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. Now, that's an interesting thing. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord, which he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. Well, Abiathar is of the house of Eli. So let's take a look at that in 1 Samuel 2. Verses 27 through 35. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice And at my offering, which I have commanded to my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of everything of my people Israel. Verse 30, therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me for those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there will, be not, will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for Israel. And, excuse me, and an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve. And all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. There w- this will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. And I will build him an enduring house and he will walk before my anointed always. So what he's telling the, the house of Eli, now it didn't happen right away. 
Keep that in mind. It didn't happen right away. But what he has told the house of Eli is that you're going to get cut off. You're not going to have somebody there anymore. So this is fulfilling that. When Abiathar is dismissed, then that's the end of the house of Eli uh, serving as priests under uh, the Davidic throne. Though Joab pleaded for mercy. Now we've, got to do that. We've, got, we've, dealt, we've dealt with Abiathar. Joab is going to be dealt with next. Though Joab pleaded for mercy, Solomon ordered his execution. And we see the same thing we saw once before uh, in the text. about grabbing the horns of the altar. We'll see that in just a moment. Now the news came to Joab, for Joab had followed Adonijah, although he had not followed Absalom. And Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. That's what they would do when they were begging for mercy. I talked about that before. That was what you would do. You would go in there, grab the horns of the altar, and you're, and you're begging for mercy. It was told King Solomon that Joab had fled to the tent of the Lord, and behold, he is beside the altar. Then Solomon sent his hitman there, right? Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, go, fall upon him. That means kill him. That's a, a, an idiom that means to kill him. So Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, thus uh, the king has said, come out. But he said, no, for I will die here. And Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, thus spoke Joab, and thus he answered me. The king said to him, do as he has spoken and fall upon him and bury him that you may remove from me and from my father's house, the blood which Joab shed without cause. Now, it's significant. They tried to get him to come out, right, to get him to come out, but he refused. He said no. And so upon his refusal at that point, he said, okay, just go ahead and, and take care of it. I mean, he, King Solomon did not want that to be done in the house of the Lord, but nonetheless, Joab refused. So there it was. He said, okay, so go ahead and take care of it because he needs to be gone. Verse 32, the Lord will return his blood on his own head because he fell upon two men more righteous and better than he. Notice that language, right? That's, that's, that's pretty uh, convicting right there. He fell upon two men more righteous and better than he and killed them with the sword while my father David did not know it. Abner, the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, commander of the army, army of Judah. So shall their blood... Return on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But to David and his descendants and his house and his throne, may there, may there be peace from the Lord forever. Now, what, why did he add that? The idea is as long as these people are around, as long as these guys are around that are these antagonists that have been a thorn in the side of David, my father, there's not going to be peace around here. So uh, because of what he did, first of all, he shed, he shed innocent blood and he deserves to die. And there's not going to be peace unless we get rid of this guy. So then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, Jehoiada went up and fell upon him and put him to death. And he was buried at his own house in the wilderness. So he's taking care of these loose ends, these individuals that are problematic for there to be a peaceful uh, beginning to his reign. Uh, then he replaced both of them, by the way, in verse 35. King appointed Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in his place. So his, his commander of his guard is actually going to be over the whole army now. And the king appointed Zadok, the priest, in place of Abiathar. So Zadok is now in, in uh, place of Abiathar, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, is over the whole army. Then Solomon placed Shimei under mandatory house arrest. Now notice, notice okay, with, with with, it's not as though Joab is not showing some mercy here, right? There are some of these individuals he's, t he's taking care of business, right? He's taking care of business with. But he's trying to show mercy. He showed mercy to Abiathar the priest. He's trying to show, show mercy to Shimei. If you look at these verses in 36 through 38, it says, Now the king sent and called for Shimei. And said to him, build for yourself a house in Jerusalem and live there and do not go out from there to any place. For on the day you go out and cross over the brook Kidron, you will know for certain that you shall surely die. Your blood shall be on your own head. Shimei then said to the king, the word is good. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. Uh, as my Lord, the king has said, so your servant will do. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem many days. So he's, he's put him under house arrest here. Hold on just one second. Now, remember when David gave his charge... He said that he would send Shimei down to Sheol 
through, through the sword, right, with blood. He's going to go down. To the, but, but Solomon is trying to show Shimei some mercy. He's putting him under house arrest. And, and, and for many days, he stayed that way. Yes, sir. Yes. For for Joab's descendants? Yes, yes, exactly. Okay, so the idea of uh, Joab's descendants, the, the negative uh, aspect of what he talked about with Joab's descendants is that basically Joab himself, uh, after he was executed the way he was, would be viewed as as a in a shameful way as opposed to a hero, right? So Joab... You know, if you look at a lot of the things that Joab did, he could have been a hero. But because of his bloodthirstiness, because of the things he did where he went off and killed innocent ones, uh, he, he received this execution, if you will, from Solomon. And now he was going to be a shameful, you know, everybody looks at Joab and goes, well, he was kind of an ugly character. And all of his family after that would be right. They would be something of outcasts because they were the descendants of Joab and Everybody kind of frowned upon Joab and all the things that he had done. So, yeah, you, you nailed it. They would basically be outcasts in Israel. Yeah, that's exactly right. Spot on. All right, so, so Shimei is in house arrest. Shimei is in house arrest. And he agrees to the terms, right? He said the word is good. He agrees to the terms. After three years, Shimei violated the terms of his house arrest. And you wonder what he was thinking here. I mean, he agreed to those terms, right? But it came about at the end of three years that two of the servants of Shimei ran away to Achish, the son of Mekah. We've, we've known about him, the king of, Gath, king of Gath. And they told Shimei, saying, Behold, your servants are in Gath. Then Shimei, I want to read in verse 40, Then Shimei said to, said to these people, I can't leave my house, so we need to send somebody over there to get my servants and bring them back. <laughs> That's not what it says. It says, Then Shimei arose and saddled his donkey and went to Gath to Achish and took, uh, to look for his servants. And Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath. I mean, I, I'm, I'm getting older and I'm starting to forget things, but that seems like a pretty serious thing to forget, right? Because what did Solomon say? Solomon said, Solomon said Your blood will be on your own head. You know, he's told him, If you decide to violate this, you have basically written your own, the decree of your own death, right? That's what he's saying. And somehow after three years, he loads up his donkey and goes, right? I mean, he's going on over to Gath. I don't get it. I honestly don't get it. And it doesn't explain it here. It doesn't give you his mindset. But clearly he, was, he, was, he saw that retrieving his servants was so important that he didn't even think about the house arrest that he was under. Uh, pretty amazing. So Solomon found out and confronted him about it in verses 41 through 43. It was told Solomon that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had returned. So the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you, saying, You will know for certain that on the day you depart and go anywhere, you shall surely die? And you said to me, the word which I have heard is good. Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the command which I have laid on you? I mean, I think he is, I think that's how he probably said it in Hebrew, but that's how he said it. He was, he was like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> What's that? What were you thinking? Yes, that's, that's pretty much what it was. Because remember, I believe and I believe that in, in his heart of hearts, Solomon wanted to show Shimei mercy because I think in his mind, and I, and I should have said this earlier, in his mind, you know, what Joab had done was deserving of death. I mean, he'd shed innocent blood. It was deserving of death. What Shimei had done, cursing David, yes, yes, this, this, the law talks about that as something that's deserving of death. But I think in Solomon's mind, he was thinking, it's apples and oranges. I don't think Shimei really deserves to die for what he did. So I, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put him under house arrest. However, because my dad, you know, specified that he wanted him taken care of, if he violates that, then he's going he's to die. I'm going to put him to death. And I think Solomon was fair in this. And I think in those three verses that I just read, I think Solomon was like, 
why did you do that? <laughs> I didn't want to have to kill you. Yes. Shemay? Oh, it was absolutely belligerent. And if you look at the law, there is, there's elements of the law that talk about that being worthy of death. Yes, you're exactly right. His cursing, all that he did. Yeah, it, yes, he was a belligerent personality. Yes, he was. And again, Shimei is one of those thorns in the side, right? That, uh, that is, with him around, there's probably not going to be peace. But if he's kept in house arrest, then he's at least not going to have too much of an effect, right? So now in the, in the last couple of verses here, Solomon made it clear to Shimei why he was ordering his execution. He's, he's like, I, I have, at this point, I, my, I have to do this. this. This was a vow. This was a vow. The king also said to Shimei, you know all the evil which you acknowledge in your heart, which you did to my father David. Therefore, the Lord shall return your evil on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. And again, this is part of the establishing of the throne is these guys, these troublemakers are being, getting, being gotten rid of. And as he had done with Adonijah and Joab, Benaiah carried out the execution of Shimei, right? Benaiah is his hitman. There's no doubt about it. Uh, so the king com- commanded uh, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and fell upon him so that he died. Now, remember, now he's not only the king's guard, leader of the king's guard, but he's also the head of the whole army. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, is the, he's, the, he's the head of the whole army at this point. And he went out and fell upon him so that he died. So, that he, so Shimei is now dead because of his own stupid decision that he made. Um, and then the kingdom was certainly now Solomon's. As it says here, thus the kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon. So even though there was this initial element of the kingdom being established in Solomon's hands, then Adonijah came up and, uh, and caused some trouble by asking for Abishag the Shunammite. And then... Basically, at that point, Solomon is taking care of all the troublemakers. So now at this point, the, the kingdom is firmly established. The idea of that firmly established, by the way, is that at this point, pretty much everybody is going to recognize him as king. Uh, the elements that would potentially try to overthrow him as king or uh, some sort of coup d'etat, those elements are gone now. They've been taken care of. And not only did he do that, but he fulfilled what his father David had asked him to do and taking care of all those loose ends. All right, we'll come back next time, and we'll look at uh, 1 Kings 3 at the uh, beginning of Solomon's reign and some of the things there. Uh, Again, as I said, we're going to start out, and we're going to look at the beginning of Solomon's reign. There's just too many things we can learn from that. I thought about, you know, this literally being the last lesson that we had in life of David, but there are just some amazing things we can learn from the beginning of Solomon's reign, and I just don't want to miss out on those. So we're going to do those. Now we'll take a look at the scripture of the week. And we're doing Ephesians 4, 14 and 15. All right, so let's all read these together. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. All right, as a result of what, you might ask? Well, if we back up, We have verses 11 through 13, which I will read to you. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. That's actually pastor dash teachers. If you look at the Greek construct, pastor dash teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So what he's saying is. This is what God has done. God gave you individuals to lead you. Today, we have evangelists and pastor teachers that are there for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. I am supposed to train you up in all of the doctrines of the scriptures so that you will be prepared for whatever it is that you face in life. I am supposed to be equipping you, not only for the trials that you might face, but for whatever ministries you may have. I'm supposed to 
prepare your souls through the teaching of the word of God so that you may be ready for whatever work of service you have and also the building up of the body of Christ. An evangelist would be training you in how to give the gospel. That's what an evangelist would be doing is teaching you how to give the gospel. But look what verse 13 says. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge, that's the full knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So when you read that, then it makes perfect sense that in 14 it says, as a result, we are no longer to be children, right? We're not supposed to be babies in the faith. We're supposed to be growing up to the, mature, to the maturity that measures up to the stature of Christ. So we're no longer to be children. And look what he goes on to say here. Paul says, if you're, if you're a child in the faith, if you're a babe in Christ, if you know nothing about God, you know nothing about his word, this is what can happen to you. Tossed here and there by waves. Now, he's not talking about water waves. He's talking about the, the waves of life, right? That's the point he's making is that life is going to toss you around and you're going to be just slammed around like you were in, a, in the waves of a hurricane. You know, we just had that hurricane at the coast and the storm surge there was a massive storm surge that just wiped out, uh, you know, that whole area down there at the coast. Thankfully, it, it didn't really hit any hugely populated areas. It, it was a blessing in that regard. But imagine being out there in the middle of the waves of that hurricane. I mean, just out of control. And that's what life is going to do. Just toss you all around. You're not going to have any steadfastness, no stability. No, you're not going to be solidly standing on the rock of Christ if you're a babe in Christ. You're going to get tossed here and there by waves. And then look what it says, and carried about by every wind of doctrine. In other words, if you don't know, if you don't know the Bible, if you don't know the Word of God, if you don't know God himself, then I can come along and say anything from this pulpit and you might walk out of here believing it, right? You could get carried away by anything I might say. Now, I'm not brave enough to do that because I know this congregation is going to be diligent like the Bereans and go search the scriptures and see if these things are so. But the reality of it is if you have a congregation of individuals who don't know their Bibles very well, the pastor can say anything and you'll walk away thinking it's true. That's the, that's the danger, right? You can be carried about by every wind of doctrine. I could, I could sit there and tell you, for example, you see, what God did is that God had this plan and he put into motion the whole universe. He created the whole thing. He put creatures on it. He put uh, the angels in, the, in, the, in the, the vast majority of the universe and then he put human beings on the earth and he set the whole thing in motion and now he's sitting back on his throne and he's watching everything unfold and he doesn't know what's going to happen, but he's watching and he's going to see what happens and see, see, I could say that to you. And, and if you didn't know better, you just sit there going, oh, really? Is that what God did? You know, your Bibles, though, you know, that God is actively involved in everything that's going on. And you know that he's omniscient, that he knows everything from the beginning to the end. He knows the omega. He knows the alpha. He knows it all. See, you guys can't be fooled. That's the thing. But if you don't know, if you're a child in the faith, then you can be carried away by every wind of doctrine. Yeah, yeah, David Koresh, Jim Jones, all of those. Think about what happened to those people being carried away by. I mean, David Koresh told them that he was basically if he told them. Remember when we did the Colts? He told them that if he had a child with one of their wives and that child would be a descendant of David. It would be blessed as a descendant of David. I mean, he was lying to these people, and they were, they were eating it up because they didn't know any better. It says then, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So that goes beyond. See, I want you to, the first part, before we get to that, carried about by every wind of doctrine. You could have somebody up in front of a congregation teaching that just simply doesn't know, right? Just some, a pastor that's ignorant, right? That's teaching things out of ignorance. But then Paul goes on to say, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Now we're not talking about ignorance. We're talking about purposeful deceit, purposeful deceit. Now think about this. What's the reason for there to be purposeful deceit? You can fill this thing up, right? I can, I can deceive you and get you to do all kinds of things, try to fill up my wallet. Also, the, the lust for power. Paula, you nailed them both. Lust for power. 
think about that. That, that, that lust for power, that greed, that lust for money, all of those things, I could, I could sit up here and just spin you guys up and I could, see, I could change plans. Right now, my plan uh, is to be God's servant and to raise up a group of believers that five years from now will be spiritually stronger than we are today. I'm not counting the number of seats in the seats. But if I had a plan where I was trying to enrich myself, I would do everything in my power to try to build this into a massive megachurch, right? Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that megachurches, all megachurches have done that. I'm saying that there are some that have, right? There are some who have gone out of their way uh, deceitfully, trickery, craftiness, to try to get pe- draw people in so that they can satisfy their own. Satisfy their own. What's that? Satisfy their own fleshy desires. That's exactly right. Oh, yeah, we can for we can shoot you bet. And not only can we pass it down, we can pass it around multiple times. I've told you all that story. <laughs> Pastor Bob, Pastor Bob told us that story. I still can't believe it. He said he was he was visiting a church and he was in that church and the pastor. Uh, they passed around the plates and then they brought the plates up to the pastor and he started going through it. He pulls up a check and he says, hey, Doug Jones, there's nobody here named Doug Jones, right? No, Doug Jones. I know you can do better than that. You can give more. I believe, believe me, I know you can. And he passed the plates around again. And then the plates came back up and he started pulling them out. And he's like, oh, come on, guys, you can do way better than this. They passed it around a third time. And what Pastor Bob said, it's funny hearing it coming from him. He said, this guy was so good, I was ready to pull money out of my wallet. You know, he's like, he was convincing me that I should pull some money out of my wallet. He was so good at it. He said, so it's powerful. Those guys that are like that, they, that that's, you'll never see that here. As, far as, I, as long as I'm pastor, we'll never pass a plate. There's always going to be a grace box in the back. Now, I understand we're getting a new grace box soon, but that's a different story. Uh, but it's always going to be a grace box. So this is, what, this is the danger of being a child in the faith. I mean, this is a serious danger, folks. This is serious. Life is going to toss you around, and you can be deceived. You can be carried away by all kinds of false teaching. That's pretty, that should scare you. Look what it says in verse 15, though. Speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. This is important. I want you all, if you, walk, if you don't walk away with anything else from today's class, walk away with this right here. Speaking the truth in love. Paul's not asking people to mince words. He's not asking people not to tell the truth. He wants people to, these people to tell the truth. And sometimes the truth is not what people want to hear. But speaking the truth in love, that is so important. Speaking the truth in love. I, I always admire people who speak the truth. We used to have this lady that was in our San Diego office of my secular job. As an engineer, she was just she was just out there with it, man. She would just say it, and I mean, sometimes it was brutal. She really was. She was she was fairly brutal. But I tell you what, I always knew where I stood with her. I never had any question. I always knew if she was happy with what I was doing or if she was unhappy with what I was doing. I never had to wonder where she was. I respected the fact that she spoke the truth. But we as believers need to know how to speak the truth in love. Because you can say things, you can say the truth in ways that's not loving. We have evidence of it every single day. Uh, all you got to do, if you want, if you want to, uh, go read a, new, a news story on, on the Internet and then just scroll down to the comments section. And you will find some in there where people are saying things that are true. But they're not spoken in love. They're not spoken in love at all. That's a huge thing. Whatever you're dealing with in life, I mean, whatever it is that's going on, uh, you're, not supposed to, you're not supposed to cover up the truth. You're not supposed to hide from the truth. You're supposed to speak the truth. But it needs to be done in love. And I actually, if I were translating this, we haven't gone through verse by verse in Ephesians yet. By the way, that's one of the ones I'm thinking about is the book of Ephesians to come next. Uh, I would have translated this, but speaking the truth in the sphere of love. Now, what I mean by that is that literally your actions, your thoughts, your everything you're doing is 
is controlled, if you will, by the love of God. Does that make sense? So that what you're saying, what you're doing, all the things is controlled by the love of God. And so when you speak the truth, do so in that sphere. Do it in a way that, and by the way, you, that doesn't control how the person reacts to it. The person you're speaking the truth in love to, they may react negatively to it. But what you're doing is you're honoring God by the way you're doing it, it, it regardless of how the person responds. But you're conveying truth. See, this is the point. You're conveying truth. I mean, if, if somebody's doing, if, it's a simple thing. If somebody's doing something, Carter, if you're, if you're doing something that's a sinful thing, I'm not saying that you are. This is a third class condition. Maybe yes, maybe no. <laughs> but if you were, Carter, doing something that was a sinful thing, your mom should come to you and tell you that that's a sin or probably remind you because you probably have already heard it before, but remind you that what you're doing is a sin and she should do it in a loving way. That's not always easy, is it, Letty? Uh, but, <laughs> but she should do it in a loving way. But the point is she's conveying truth to you so that you, as her son, you are now receiving truth, God's truth. And how you receive it is up to you. You might get mad when she tells you about that. But you're getting truth. And as you speak the truth to others, everyone's receiving truth. That's what is part of the rest of this verse. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. You see, as we speak truth to one another, we're getting ready to have a potluck. In that potluck lunch, we should be speaking truth to one another. As we do that, we're helping the body to grow. Because remember, what came before this? The building up of the body of Christ, right? The building up of the body of Christ. So as we speak the truth to one another in love, it's part of what it takes for us to grow up into all aspects, into him who is the head, even Christ. Now, we could have gone on into verse 16. You know, we want to, by the way, that language of growing up into him, right? Growing up in all aspects into him. Is that not what the Christian way of life is all about? We're growing up into our Savior Christ. I mean, that's, that's it. And he's the head and we are the body. We look at verse 16. From whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. By the way, that's us. That's us. We are everybody in this, everybody in this congregation supplies something. It's not just the pastor standing up here being a goofball. Everybody in this congregation supplies something by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. You see, that's the key. I want every part to be working properly because it's just like your car. If, if something starts to go wrong with your car, the car stops working right. The same thing's true with the body of Christ, the body of believers in this congregation. If we're not all working properly, the body suffers. The body suffers according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's huge. Again, I always talk about everybody calls the apostle John the, the apostle of love because he talks about love a lot. Paul talks about love a lot. He puts a real emphasis on loving with the kind of love, agape love, the kind of love that's God's love. Yes, ma'am. Um, I think when in verse 15, they said we are to grow up. Reminds me of James saying, not only hearers of the word, but doers. In other words, if you hear the word, you walk out the door, and don't let it affect my life or those around yeah. me, then what have I gained? What have I gained? Yes, yes, I... I totally agree with you. The discipline is going out and doing the yes, I totally agree with that. So, the, so what Paul brought up is that when she reads in verse 15, we are to grow up into all aspects into him. That growing up is being doers of the word, not merely hearers. If, if you hear the word and that's as far as it goes and you walk out the door of this building and that's it. And it doesn't, it doesn't ever echo in your thoughts and you don't dwell on these things and, and you don't turn them into action in your life. Then you're not growing up in the faith. That's not going to affect you. That's not going to bring about a, a spiritual growth. It's not going to. It's when the word is heard, you listen to it, you receive it, 
You believe it, you dwell upon it, and you act upon it. All of those steps are part of the growth process. I totally agree with you, Paula. And if that happens, if you're going through all of that process, and by the way, that takes time. That's not like that happens in a microsecond. That takes time. But as all of those things are happening, growth is occurring in your own souls. You, you, you guys should know that. You've seen it in your own lives. You've seen that kind of growth. And that's what Paul is asking for, is for us all to grow up and become more Christ-like. That's really what this is all about, becoming more Christ-like. All right, well, that's a very good passage there. I can't believe I hadn't had it as a scripture of the week before now. Uh, but we're not supposed to remain children in the faith. We're supposed to grow up into Christ and reflect him to this lost and dying world. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your message today, the message we got from reading out of the the Old Testament scriptures in 1 Kings regarding the death of David and then Solomon and the beginning of his reign. We thank you for all the lessons we can learn from those Old Testament scriptures as well as what we can learn from the New Testament as we looked at the scripture of the week in Ephesians. We thank you that the, the message of your word is a unified message. All of these things that we read from your word are for our spiritual benefit, for our blessing, that we might grow up in the faith. But, Father, as we just talked about, if we just hear these things and walk away and forget them, we, we will not benefit from them in any way. Uh, these things, it takes diligence. It takes discipline in the Christian life. And that's really all you ask of us is that we trust and that we obey and that we diligently apply your truths to our lives. That's really the secret. That's how we have victory is as we turn our eyes toward Jesus, as we rely upon the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, we can have a successful, victorious Christian life. But it involves learning about you and coming to know you better and better every single day. So we're so thankful for your word, which blesses us. We're so thankful that when you looked upon us and all of us, you looked upon all of us in the garden when Adam and Eve fell, you looked upon all of us, you had mercy on us, and you sent your son Jesus to die for every single one of us. He died for all of our sins. And because of that, through nothing more than trusting in him, putting our faith in Jesus Christ, we can have eternal life and know that we're going to spend all of eternity with you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for that kind of love, not only your love, but the love of Jesus himself. We thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen.